coming up on today's podcast. The first step is to ask the question about what is it within the human nature that leads us to find these situations where humanity spends more time solving problems of its own creation than it does in building something that is more sustainable in the truest sense. Now, how often do we think deeply about the kind of society we would really like to create and be part of? I'm Jane Gunn, the Barefoot Mediator, and this is a show where we have some of those deep conversations and explore how our choices are impacting society. In today's episode, I am speaking with Dan Astin Gregory, an entrepreneurial thought leader and founder of Elevate, about how individuals can take responsibility for building the society we would like to be part of. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Jane. Good to see you. Delighted it's to be really here. I know, I know. Gosh, so the last time we were together was August, August campout. Yeah, yes, so the weather, was. the weather was a bit finer. So we were together at an event, we can talk about it later, but a campout event here in Oxfordshire, which was amazing. And I think, you know, when we talk about it later, you'll have some lessons from that in terms of community building and envisioning and so on. So it's kind of one of just one of the things I'd like to talk to you about today. But Dan, start off just by telling listeners who you are and where your passion for the work that you do comes from. Yes, well, how far back to go, James, the question, you know. So. <laughs> I know, it's always difficult, isn't it? The, well, the work I'm doing today is very different to the work I was doing in 2019. It's very different to the work I was doing in 2012, and it's very different from the work I was doing in 2007. So, in 2007, I left my corporate career. Uh, I left my, I went to university and, and started my corporate career, worked in financial services. And there I developed a passion for human potential, really, and actually human flourishing and what we can do to make the best of our abilities and, and our talents. And it was really a growth opportunity for me to find my own sense of self confidence and self esteem. I then went to start my own business in 2012, working with leaders and entrepreneurs. So throughout my career, I've always had a passion for human potential, but also transforming ideas into reality. And I've always, at the heart of all of that, particularly when I started my own business, wanted to create an impact in the world, a positive impact in the world through the work that I was doing. And then things really changed for me going into 2020, the last three years, the the kind of COVID chapter, if you will, really opened up my eyes to lots of different things and really revealed, I feel, some trends in the wider kind of economic, political, social, cultural space that I became deeply curious about. And and as I became more and more aware of some of the things that were causing me frustration, uh, it led me to kind of direct my attention to asking questions about how can society move forward from here? And is is the trajectory on a healthy one? Does Does it meet the core essence of what it means to be human and, and how one can flourish in the modern world and I found I found myself wanting and coming up short when it came to looking at the kind of overall direction that society and the western culture is heading on so my work has changed significantly I now create content about what I see uh, you know, I suppose you could call me a cultural common cultural political commentator in a way but that's not really my full identity I, I spend a lot of time working with change makers and entrepreneurs to figure out how Again, we can turn coming full circle, how we can transform those ideas into reality to make a difference in the world. Whilst also finding my own path as a, as a change maker as in, in the mix of this very uh, tumultuous time. Okay. 
and Dan, you're you're a dad, you're a husband and father as well, which you know adds a sort of urgency, doesn't it, to this work? I think it does. Yeah, I became a father in September 2021, and yeah, life changing moment. It really forced me to not forced me to. It really created the invitation to reflect who I want to be as a father, and you know what kind of role model I want to be to my son. And also more broadly with the context of my work, what kind of world would I like him to grow up in? And I made the commitment that I wanted to do everything I could to make sure that he grew up with greater opportunities. And I had, you know, I, I had a wonderful upbringing. This not, not to say anything negative about my own bringing, but I want my son to have greater opportunities, liberties, rights and freedoms than I have. Uh, and particularly in this time where human rights and liberties have been threatened and continues to be threatened and this kind of safety culture P- 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 proliferates you know almost trying to reach a state of a world where we eliminate all risks like something it's almost like the definition of freedom is to be free from risk but in, in the case of achieving such a result we eliminate a, a lot what a lot more a lot more of our freedom so a lot of the inspiration does come from having zach my son and yeah really thinking about what kind of life i'd like him to lead and and, and the environment and, and culture that he will grow up in so it's he's a huge motivating factor but uh, my motivation, you know, certainly extends beyond uh, becoming a father, but certainly now has been reinvigorated by becoming a father. And of course, husband to my wife and, you know, got my broader family and friends. Yeah, so not defined by my work, but it's a huge part of what I'm focused on right now. Yeah. And, and I have become a grandmother during this time. So I've got three little granddaughters, which again is another generation, another layer to think about. So it does make you see things in some kind of generational perspective I think and then looking back uh, I don't know about you but I look back at my grandparents and great-grandparents and think you know what do we learn from the transition that they've gone through particularly as a woman I think you know going through the transition of what a woman's role in society would have been during those different generations so um, you know there's a lot that helps us gain perspective and what we can learn from history that we don't always do yeah, well, yeah, it's interesting to mention that so my, my grandfather passed away when he was 98. So he was he was serving in the war. And towards the latter stages of his life, I asked him a lot about his experiences during the war times. It was really interesting to hear his life experiences and the things that he'd experienced. And uh, my other grandfather passed away quite a bit before my grandfather, and my father's side. But again, he was serving in the war and both both of them in different ways. And it's yeah, just really fascinating to learn of a totally different generation with a, a different set of huge challenges, but how it shaped a generation and what lessons can be learned from that. And I, I feel like what we're going through now, it may feel, you know, in context, it's 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 a very different experience, but we, we can't compare. But it, at, at the same time, every challenge and frustration or, or issue is relative. And we certainly are experiencing some challenges in the wider world right now. And uh, but I'm sure much of what we're experiencing will will shape uh, many of us, those of us who particularly become active and engaged in in dealing with certain social, cultural, political, economic issues will help not only to shape ourselves, but potentially influence our culture and our generation moving forward. So it's it's yeah, I think we are a defining time in history and I meet it with deep excitement and curiosity, despite uh, you know, the, the daily sense of frustration I feel every time I log into Twitter or X as it's now known. I know. 
Yeah, there's always something, isn't there? Yesterday, I wrote a blog and I quote quite often a psychologist called Al Siebert, who's looked at survival and survival personalities. And uh, he talks in particular about the time when he, he lived in Portland, Oregon, and the volcano erupted. And despite all the experts having um, you know, given their opinions on it, nobody was right and um, you know, people weren't prepared and people hadn't seen what was coming or they didn't want to see what was coming. And so his lessons, although I read that book some 20 years ago, more than that probably, those lessons keep coming back to me and that um, one of the things Al Siebert said that I wanted to sort of talk to you about was that it's, uh, let me just read it, human nature creates our biggest survival challenge. And I wonder what it is, particularly if we move on to thinking about, so how do we go forward to build the communities we would like to live in, the families we would like to live in, the society we would like to live in? What do you think it is about human nature that holds us back from creating our own sense of a right community? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's a big question, but I think, yeah, it's important to kind of lean into that. One of my uh, entrepreneurial mentors always used to say, and it's written in her book, actually, um, that it's a quote to say, I've got 99 problems and every one of them is a human being. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yes. you know, you know, it, when building a business, whatnot, you know, de- de- dealing with employees, suppliers, et cetera, you know, it's the problems often emerge from human input. And actually a, a lot of the issues that we're grappling with in the wider world now are uh, not necessarily things of a natural occurrence, but the, the human response to natural occurrences, but also the human response to other human issues. And to that degree, then we have to assess the human nature and what role the human nature plays in both create the creation of the problems that we're facing, but also the role that humanity and human nature can play in 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 forging a brighter future. And I'm of the belief that we are in an evolutionary cycle. And I do believe that we are in an evolutionary upward cycle. It's easy to take for granted many of the uh, material comforts that we get to enjoy today. And, the, you know, for all its ills and challenges, the healthcare system, we have access to uh, amazing resources. And, you know, we, we live in a very different time. And, you know, I was even reading a bit recently, just, just, just reminding me how recent things like the capacity to have a warm shower is actually within, yeah. you know, within the last 100, 120 years, which actually in the scheme of things isn't a lot of time. Yet technology is now growing at such a pace that actually part of the question is around how the human nature will play out in the face of these emerging technologies. And I, but and again, I'm still aware that this type of question does emerge when there's any epoch leap in technological advancement. And we're seeing this with AI and, and various other digital technologies and, it is important at this point to confront the human nature, not just in the scope of political, cultural, social challenges, but technological challenges that may not yet have emerged. And, you know, people talk about this idea of existential threat or um, this confluence of crises. And we do live in a state of perma crisis. In fact, it was Collins Dictionary Word of the Year last year, perma crisis. Really? <laughs> yep. Uh, actually yeah. Yeah, true. yeah fact. but we also have things to anticipate down the road ahead and uh, without being bleak about it i do think that technology could be the cause of our own demise if we allow ourselves to run amok with uh, some of the kind of artificial general intelligence i also think 
some of the gene editing, some of the stuff that kind of leans into transhumanism, prolonging human life. And, you know, I, for one, would like to extend my life as long as possible. You know, I've set a target of at least seeing in, you know, I've seen in one decade, uh, one, one century, I want to see in 2100, which will take me up to, um, uh, how old will I be? Yeah, 117 years old. Oh, uh, fantastic. I hope uh, I'm still alive then too, Dad. Yes, let's celebrate that one together. So longevity is obviously a key, but it's how we use those technologies and, and the... Yeah, the, the capacity for technology to outstrip yeah. human behavior. So I know we haven't come together to explicitly talk about that, but it, it it does play, it does illustrate the role of human nature in the face of a changing world. And despite my comment that I believe human nature is evolving, I don't think we always learn the explicit lessons from the past and what other crises have taught us. Uh, it does seem that we come back to the same issues and problems in different forms. And I've always been known to say there's no such thing as a unique problem, just a unique set of circumstances around problems that we've faced before. And now how we address that for, for the sake of our futures is a big question. But I think the first step is to ask the question about what is it within the human nature that leads us to find these situations where humanity spends more time solving problems of its own creation. <laughs> Yeah. that it does you know in in building something that is more sustainable in the truest sense so yeah it's a, it's a fascinating exploration and it it can take us through philosophy psychology mm. um at the individual level but also social dynamics cultural dynamics in an expanding world as we become more digitally connected than we've ever before been but at the same time potentially more less physically connected than we've ever been when the role of community, as you opened up, actually plays a, a, a big part, I believe, in uh, the evolution of our human nature and how we evolve or devolve. <laughs> I would say that, you know, we're, we're an earlier stage of evolution in the digital world than we are in the physical world. There's certain norms and culture, uh, sort of norms and values that we embrace in the physical society. But in the digital realm, some of those are lacking. You know, certainly the way that people attack each other online and yep. deep polar, yep. polarization, tribalization. You know, hate speech, if you will, and again, in the truest form, uh, as in being hateful rather than hate speech, I think is a, is a better way to put that because it's become a politicized term in itself. So all of this is you know, wrapped up in in our human nature and, and, and what role can it play in making us or breaking us, I think, is an important issue. I think as a, as a lawyer and a mediator, I see a very clear pattern of conflict, really, of people, as you say, becoming easily polarised, of being adver adverse adversarial towards each other. I took part back in 1995, I think it was, in something called the Tomorrow's Company Inquiry, which was looking at what is it that holds businesses back from uh, operating at their optimum level. But it would apply to any group. And it was adversarial approach to relationships and that seems always to be the thing the hurdle that we can't get over is that we come to this place where I'm right and you're wrong or my group is right and your group is wrong or my opinion's right and yours is wrong and we can't get over that hurdle so I wonder therefore Dan if we look at perhaps even you know the the the, the event that we were both at camp out you know what are some of the key challenges in bringing people together and envisioning and creating something new, if we want to create teams and societies and so on, which don't have that stumbling block of adversarial relationships, but perhaps are looking at a different criteria for bringing about human flourishing. Yeah, if I may, yeah, I may just, if I may just 
underscore some of the points you've made us before I address that in that we do live in a deeply polarized society and tribalized society, but that's often proliferated by our sense of the world, which is our perception of the world, which is increasingly formed by our connection to the digital world as opposed to the physical realm. And again, it's 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 very clear that things like social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., algorithmically feed off this kind of polarization of society, uh, the in-group and the out-group. Mm-hmm. And the same is true of modern and uh, new media, modern and traditional media. And it's become very clear that media has understood how to use things like moral outrage in a polarizing fashion to mm-hmm. galvanize attention, to galvanize views, which is essential, obviously, as a survival mechanism uh, for for attracting revenue, etc. So the incentive structures of the modern world with some of the tools that are pervasive within our lifestyle are actually part of the problem. But again, you could argue that a technology is neutral. You know, I've had this argument philosophically many times, you know, is a gun technologically neutral or is it designed for, for the purpose of firing bullets? Now, yeah, okay, the, the intent is in the in the eye of the beholder, of course, but that intent is informed by the construction of the article. And yeah, I've, I've had deep conversations around this and gone in circles with it, but I use that more extreme example because the same could be said for something like Facebook, which, you know, as a tool now is, it has great potential and it has made a, you know, it has, it has brought people together and enabled people to share things with their families and, and such. But as a technology, its business model relies upon attention and not only attention, it relies on us staying on the platform and uh, scrolling. <laughs> yeah, scrolling. scrolling. Uh, but, but it's, it's clear that it, this, you know, mainstream media, social media have realized that polarization is a way mm. to create engagement. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And so it reinforces the problem. And again, you can walk out in the, in, into the real world and, you know, speak to your neighbor or someone in the street and all of that energy is seemingly not there. And a lot of people now use pseudonyms and fake names and profiles online to, to, to have a degree of anonymity, which means you don't even know who you're talking to. And plus, you know, if, if there was an argument that broke out down the local pub or even during the daytime, during a cafe, other human beings would intervene in some way. Or if it's the landlord to say, oh, you out, you know, to, to actually to, 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 uh, to placate the situation. But how often do you see that on Twitter when there's a spat between two individuals who comes in as a peacemaker and says, well, hang on a minute, hold on. You know, let's not get into a slanging match. Let's look at this, you know, uh, so I wanted to kind of precursor that because the tribalization, the polarization part is a big part of my focus and understanding not necessarily how we come to consensus. You know, it's not necessarily about consensus, but it's a means of being able to enter into dialogue and even beyond dialogue into, into, into wider conversations and debate and discussions around complex ideas in a way that is non-tribal, is non-polarizing. It doesn't mean that we have completely stoic conversations without an emotional charge but 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 it's how do we how do we prevent that emotional charge from overspilling mm-hmm. into anger directed at an individual or or conversations that result in moving from conversations about facts or ideas into slander or ad hominem attacks against the individual because that's again more and more pervasive it's it's if if you can't win the argument on the points People are resorting to smears. And again, the mainstream media have mastered this, you know, outgrouping and in-grouping, 
you know, the far right, you know, conspiracy theorists, all these kind of labels are just attached now to certain groups to diminish any valid argument. Mm. So how do we break free from all of that and actually create a a new form of town square, if you will, where the public debate can be heard in a a constructive and meaningful fashion? Uh, And how can we move towards something that Aubrey Marcus calls uh, united polarity, meaning Mm -hmm. that, you know, we can still have respect for one another and be respectful towards one another in our polarities, meaning, you know, point A versus point B, they can be completely contradictory, but we we, we can have reverence for the individual and the idea. And, And it to me feels like we're so far from that right now. And it almost feels like digital technology has created the lost art of empathy and there's such a lack of understanding about what empathy actually means in the, in the in the course of discourse or dialogue or conversation in our ability to simply acknowledge someone else's point of view and to acknowledge is not to accept or agree it is to recognize that that individual has a view that may or may not be the same as yours and it's the old Stephen Covey adage of seeking first to understand before being understood. And I, I put a post out as my morning thought on uh, on Monday morning uh, on Twitter, saying that everyone seems to want to be everyone wants to be heard, but nobody wants to listen. Yeah, which That's means so true, Dan. So true. Mm. Yeah. So it's it's returning to that art and practice of empathy, which is lost in the digital age. But of course, we're spending more and more time in the digital age. Therefore, it kind of starts to shape our behaviours and outlook and our attitudes and our perceptions. And as a result, that's, you know, I, I wanted a precursor of the conversation around camp out because camp out is a physical, a physical gathering. You know, it's literally a festival type, you know, to put people into the picture, a festival type event, a small festival type event. We had close to 350 people together, uh, several stages. You could describe it as a festival of ideas, but we wanted to, we wanted to deviate from that idea and, and come up with the idea that this is a community gathering, a place to explore ideas uh, and concepts and practices. And we wanted to bring together a diverse group of speakers, facilitators, creatives, artists, musicians, um, to create a captivating environment for people to uh, find a container within, within which we can explore these ideas and conversations in a way that we kind of described that brings back a sense of community conversation, a public square where that idea of mutual respect and understanding can be achieved, even if you do, even if you vehemently disagree. And I think we were reasonably successful in creating that, but we were still two communities forming this event. And there's certainly two different communities, different, different backgrounds, different composition of different people's attitudes, beliefs, et cetera. There was certainly some middle ground where there's some overlap in terms of our two, two different communities that we brought together. But again, even people in communities or in tribes are a reflection of a rich tapestry of individuals. And if you were to able to visualize everyone's attitudes and beliefs and perceptions or perspectives on things, it would be hugely diverse. So bringing people together in that kind of format with the idea that we can actually hold a space and create a space with certain values and principles to encourage difficult conversations in a healthy way was a big part of our intention. Uh, so grappling with the issues in the world that we've alluded to, plus more, so that we can a seek to sense make it and make sense of, uh, and understand. You seek first to understand. It's not just about other people's opinions; it's about broader context and group sense making offers a lot of value in helping us to great, gain a broader sense of perspective. 
but then also to, to, to understand how it relates to our own lives and, and for those who are interested, which is a large majority of our attendees, is how we can also be part of the change we want to see in our own lives and in, in the wider world around us. So it was a it was an enormous undertaking in terms of the the, the nature of the task, even if you know small in, uh, you know it's not a Glastonbury, you know that comes from its own logistical challenges. We had our own fair of logistical challenges, but really the, the the biggest challenge is is bringing that diverse group of people together and holding such a space for that type of discussion to unfold. I think, yeah, I mean, I was there, Dan, and saw saw it unfold, if you like. And, you know, there there is for that moment in time, this tremendous sense of collaboration. And I think then the, the idea is how do you hold on to that? What is it that you created that could go forward? I think one of the challenges we find when we're not together in community is that even though we may be with others, we are perhaps afraid of, which I think is what I spoke about at Camp Out, we're afraid of speaking up. So we rather try and merge into the background, or many people do, and sort of either share the views that we don't actually share or, or not speak up about our own views. We don't feel necessarily safe to share with others what our true thoughts and feelings are about a particular topic and that to me is the challenge you know it's it's not the necessarily the bringing together of the diverse people but enabling them really to have the safety to share and know that that's expected and wanted of them yeah well i will use a very hot button subject to illustrate a point on this there's a lot of conversation in the public right now about the russell brand allegations put forth by the channel 4 dispatches documentary and it's another example in the, if, if we, you know, I take the allegations very seriously and I, I, I don't actually want to comment on this part of the, 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 the issue, but immediately there's a deeply polarized set of views on the scenario, you know, with, with relatively limited information from what, you know, people, people have come to conclusions about the situation with a very limited set of information. And uh, as a broadcaster, I look at the wider meta-analysis of this really and its implications because surrounding the issue is now a kind of conversations around censorship uh, demonetization government involvement in such a uh, action the government have written to all these different content platforms about the situation we've got the court of public opinion trial by social media the undermining of the legal system but then it also reveals all these different complexities around why the illegal system isn't effective in the context of these types of allegations and the whole range of perspectives around the broader issues that have been raised by this. So there's this whole complex set of ideas around this initial problem. But again, moral outrage is used to stoke this inflammatory reaction, which divides people's opinions. And it, it, it kind of breaks down the conversation about what is necessary around this wider context, this wider set of ideas. Uh, but because the moral outrage is so strong around the allegations itself, and you know, rightly, if there's if there's if there is a crime there, it should be treated as such. But we, but that moral outrage becomes so significant that it becomes very difficult then to address address the the secondary issues around government involvement in private business or. Uh, media you know, or the idea of trial by public opinion rather than the, the, the legal system you know it, these wider issues are important but because the moral outrage is so strong yeah. it's very difficult to then enter into that conversation I'm even nervous bringing this up as an example to, to give you that and and I, know. I was, I was mm -hmm. supposed to broadcast on Monday it's now Thursday but I'm so delighted I took the time to delay because 
I can have my own instinctive reaction to it based upon my own perceptions, my own attitudes, my own beliefs, my own uh, context around the individual and the situation. But if I first jump into my immediate reaction without first canvassing wider views and wider opinions, and I actually put a post on my social media on Sunday, it's had over 2000 comments. And I, I, I read over 500 of them to gain these wider sense of perspectives. And I've read lots of different articles and I've purposefully gone down all different avenues to find the kind of to deliberately seek the complexity and understand the opposing viewpoints so that now when I do come to broadcast it, I come with a much more rounded assessment, but still no closer to the truth. And but it's it's, it's but 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 I'm able to do so now because of that wider sense of perspectives. I feel less fearful, but it, because of the moral outrage, it creates this vacuum where people feel uncomfortable talking about the issue. And yeah. I, I I think that's part of the complexity. So whether it's an issue that's inflammatory like the, the brand allegations, or whether it's COVID or vaccines or Ukraine or net zero, whatever the current kind of theme of the news is then when we're so polarized and divided and there's such moralization of the conversation which is partly i think at the root of the cause it does cause us to self-censor and that that is a very dangerous path to walk on and i think for all the loudness of social media amidst amongst that there are millions of people who aren't part of the conversation because of the fear of reprisal, social judgment, getting it wrong. And that's that's difficult because we're, we're not we're not operating in a community sense when we are self-censoring in such a way. Well, I think what you've done, Dan, that many, many people won't do is you've done some research. You've you've read articles, you've listened to, you know, other people's opinions. You've you've done some homework there. And I think, you know, what what many people do is jump to conclusions. And what I would say uh, from the mediation world, make assumptions. So, you know, you've got a, a minimum amount of facts. And from that, you assume X, Y, and Z, or you assume what follows without really knowing. And yet, even today, we get criticised for doing that homework. You know, why would we challenge the experts or the government or and so on? And Though to me, it makes sense. Why would I not ask my own questions, dig a bit deeper, find out? Because I know as a lawyer that every single case that comes to me as a mediator has two sets of experts who definitely disagree with each other. So we know that scientific legal experts disagree uh, frequently. And so they should, because that's the way we move forward by challenging those ideas and opinions and thinking well where does the balance lie between those and yet I don't think we do uh, most people do do that critical thinking and it's something I'm very keen on is getting people to think critically about things and then think well what do what do I think now and what do other people think you know it's not just about what do I think or what conclusions have I jumped to but what's the broader perspective on this and that it can change you know we may not be in the, you don't just make up your mind and say well that's it <laughs> you're still open to having your mind changed or to new information coming in yeah yeah and it's 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 also important to recognize that any one of us is always de- dealing with limited information you know yes, it's, it's, it's no matter how much research we do you know it's, you can get you can get you know, I get a sense of some of the broad themes of discussion that are emerging, and there's more and more, more and more emerging by the day, which which illustrates that however up to date I was on the kind of core themes of discussion around the issue at this moment, 
in 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 a, in, a, in a heartbeat it could change and so it's it's recognizing that 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 uh limited information we, we can only i mean even the greatest ai in the world it, if you put it to task to try and assess all of the narratives around this conversation it it, it probably wouldn't be able to draw together all, all of the uh, threads that would be necessary to get a fully rounded assessment of the situation God, ask me again in 10 years time whether the artificial general intelligence can well I think it is uh, yeah. interesting to look back on the yeah. we're in now and think, well, what did we think then and what did we learn? And, you know, the, the five-year, 10-year, 50 years maybe, Dan, when we come to celebrate your big birthday or whatever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you in terms of sort of community building and so on is that uh, I get the sense that most of us are looking for someone to save us, whether it's the experts or the government or some you know, iconic leader that we think is there and can tell us what to do and the way to live. Uh, and that could be an influencer these days. And I wonder what you think of, of that as a sort of premise and how we might shift away from what I see that being as perhaps the victim mentality uh, to focus on our own agency and our own ability to co-create. Yeah, I think this is such an important area. And it's, I could tell you, Jane, this conversation, as well, if we stretched it out into its fullness, it would become highly controversial. And I'll explain why in a moment, because the idea of personal agency is an important one. And it, and you're right. At this moment in history, certainly in the Western developed world, it, 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 we have, in a broad sense, reached a point where people are always looking to others for the solution, whether it's uh, devolving decision making to governments or you know, it's our own healthcare. Is you know, someone else is making the decisions for us? Our education, and I, you know, similarly, I, I put a post on my Facebook, and you know, if your listeners, I've tackled some pretty controversial subjects for the last three years. It's led me to have some restrictions on my accounts, all of which I disagree with. <laughs> um, but I've had approximately twelve months where my Facebook account has had limitations, so. Uh, I've not been able to post without any really real reach or conversation around the things I was sharing, which as a content creator, puts a lot of time and effort to doing things is very disappointing, but it's just come back. And I put one of my first questions I asked, having been able to, to, to reach people again, was what do you believe that humanity ultimately needs right now? And similarly, I had over 2000 responses. So it's a very popular post. And again, I, 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 I read through the comments and a lot of the people who were answering that in the main, were listing things outside of themselves mm -hmm. as solutions, whether it's of a religious orientation, we need Jesus or God, or whether it's a governmental intervention, a change in government as though waving a magic wand and replacing the current leaders with another leader or the current blue flag with a red flag or a green flag or a yellow flag is going uh, to change, change things. Everything was outside oneself. And I think a large part of my work is really helping people to see that actually, in the words of Gandhi, we have to be the change we want to see. I truly believe, you know, people, the, the old adage of charity begins at home. I believe change begins at home. If we, if we want a more peaceful world, then we need to become, we need to find inner peace for ourselves. If we want a, a more free world, then we need to find how to overcome our own inner constraints and limitations, our own inner freedom. How do we, if we want a more healthy world, then we need to learn how to become healthier ourselves. If we want better communities, then we need to be able to relate better to ourselves and to others. And the list goes on because ultimately society and culture is a reflection of the individuals who comprise it. 
and, and we've, we've we've not become lazy, although to some degree, some would argue that society has become lazier because everything that the, the guiding sentiment around progress is ease and convenience. And I think that in itself would be very difficult to dispute. I think in the Western world and developed world in particular, ease and convenience is the driving force. So, you know, previously, and there's a brilliant documentary on the blue zones, which is about the areas of the world where there's a higher proportion of centenarians, people over 100 years old. And it shows that people are more and more physically active and not just for the sake of being physically active. Like we go to the gym, you know, people are growing their own food, you know, manually washing their clothes, you know, and we'd look at that and think, what are you manually washing your clothes? So you've got, to, you know, have, how, you can save time. You can put it in the in the machine or washing their dishes. Uh, but they showed how people would wash the dishes together. It'd be part of the conversation. You know, it's, it's now we used to do that at home, wash the dishes and dry them together, together, conversation, discuss the day. Yeah. And now everything is about saving time, becoming easier and more convenient. Yeah. So, so as a result, we have into a degree, consciously or our subconscious has become lazier. And uh, more and more of our decision making is outsourced to the experts, but more and more of our lifestyle is out, outsourced to technology. And, and as such, we've created a condition whereby personal responsibility, we've got a diminished sense of personal responsibility because we haven't got, we ha- we're, not, we're not required in the same way to take such responsibility because the societal and technological and cultural conditions have created a sense of the world, a state of the world where it's not as required, it's not as necessary. But the reality is as a result, that's created a sense of stagnation in our process, I think, or a devolution in our digital sense. And if we are really to change things, and there's a lot of conversation now about the power structures of the world, about how things are more centralized than ever before. And you know, decisions are being made at the global level by unelected bodies, or if they are elected, it's elected by its members rather than the broader public or the wider nation state uh, or the nations that comprise the, the organization. And as such, that further diminishes personal responsibility because previously, when we lived in more communal, rural type environments, you know, we, we would all play a part in shaping our local area and community. I've never lived in a time like that. You know, I'm coming up to 40 years old this year. I've certainly lived in a smaller town environment where. We do play a more active role in community. There are community organizations that bring communities together. You know, I certainly experienced that living in the seaside town growing up, you know, the Rotary and all these different organizations have always been doing stuff to bring bring the townsfolk together to do things together, even if it wasn't constructively working towards a lot of it was always fundraising for other things. But now you know, we live in this more globalized, centralized world. And as such, our decision making is not only outsourced to the experts, it's also more and more remote. So on one hand, we can look at that and say that's a problem. But on the other hand, we can look ourselves in the mirror and recognize we've enabled that by the state of the world that we live in now, because each of us contributes it through our action or our inaction. And therefore, if we want things to change, let's say you're, you're, you're hungry for political change. Well, let's look at the United Kingdom. Different reports suggest that less than one to two percent of the UK population actually belong to a political party. Yet if you're unhappy with what the political situation is you can write to your mp sure uh, but they're bombarded with all kinds of requirements they have little autonomy anyway in the sense of in certainly the true sense of the world in the in, in the context of what i've just shared but how can you really influence it if you're not even part of a political party now i i for one don't feel aligned to any one of the political parties which is potentially why many of us aren't actually members of political parties but join all of them you know <laughs> just, oh, just <laughs> Stick a couple of quid in each one, um, <laughs> uh, you know, because the reality is that whilst corporations are having greater and greater influence over politics, the, cent- the global centralised 
machine is having greater influence over local, regional, national politics. The reality is if we want to change it, we've got to become involved in the conversation. So it's all interlinked with a sense of personal agency. And overlaid, this is where it can start getting 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 controversial because in the in, in a prosper a more prosperous world and you know we still have poverty of course but our overall standard of living is exceptionally high compared to historical standards and certainly exceptionally high compared to the developing world so we almost get this embroiled sense of entitlement alongside this sense of ease and yes this is why you know some people look to the government there are groups of people who want the government to fix everything and there are other groups who want to take responsibility and autonomy for doing so. It, it, there's polarization and division on that. And it of, often falls along political lines about the role of the state and you know, what they should do, et cetera, et cetera. But if you take all of that polarization off the table and just look at it again, the idea that change begins at home, what simple changes can each of us make in our own life to make the world better? But then going beyond ourselves, how can, how can we be in service to others, our family, our communities, to start to create a ripple effect where the sense of agency and autonomy becomes part of our culture. Because if the culture is defined by the, you know, they always say politics is downstream from culture. Our culture is deep into the issues we've just, I've just put forth, or at least that's my argument. There's many other arguments as well in terms of the fullness of information. But if we really want things to change, if we want the culture to change, we want the politics to change, we have to influence the culture. And if we want to influence the culture, we have to influence ourselves. Uh, and, and then become role models for change. And I believe that if we do become advocates for personal agency and personal responsibility, it's not a selfish act. It's a selfless act. The ability to advance in our own lives and become uh, enter into a state of flourishing for ourselves can show and illuminate the path to others to do the same for themselves. We can become a mirror to other people. And I think that's the challenge to us right now. But then how we, how we, how we interweave that within the broader society and culture and communities is the next big challenge when we've got all of the other things that we started this conversation, this melting pot that keeps us separated. Yeah. How do, how do we break through all of that so that we can individually and collectively rise? I love how you took that very broad view where it seems almost impossible to think what the solution is because, you know, it's so far out of our hands and take it back and say, actually, no, you start with you, then you start at home, then you start with this idea of service. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you can bring those simple principles into practice in your own life every single day, every single minute of the day, can't you, Dan? Yeah, and it's it's interesting. It makes, you know, I thought briefly, thinking about my childhood, as I was talking about growing up in Torbay there, which is where I lived when I was growing up, and those seaside community gatherings, they were beautiful. And the sun always seemed to shine during those times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah rose tinted glasses. <laughs> uh, um, but it reminds me of our early television sets. Yeah, we, yeah, I, I grew, uh, grew up at a time where we had four, cha- like four channels. Imagine that. There'd be some people out there who can't even conceive. Well, I'm older first. than you, Dan, so <laughs> <laughs> I remember black and white TV and two channels. <laughs> my, my first television was a black and white television that my grandfather gave to me and I, I didn't even have buttons. It had a dial that you had to tune it in manually like a radio. Yes, to, to, yes to I do remember one. And we used to have a TV repairman who came so you could actually repair your television. You didn't have to throw it away when it stopped working. Yeah, I always tell the story of my TV repairman because he came to fix our VHS set, our video player, and uh, he couldn't work it out. And I, my curious mind at the time... I was like, what's that there? And he's like, you've got, you know, he, he then realized that he'd missed something. It, it, it actually corroded. And that was the reason why it wasn't fixable. Anyway, that's a segue into my own um, <laughs> personal curiosity about the nature of the world. Um, you, you talked about, you know, and I, 
you talked about hot showers and I, I remember when we didn't have a shower at home you know I remember our first shower being installed and of course a shower is a lovely thing but it's much quicker than a bath and you know it's again you don't have that you know having a bath is time to think or if you want it to be or you can have a quick bath but you know when you're in the shower you're in and out aren't you so it may be a lot of the things I think that we think we've created for convenience actually end up taking away from the human experience of something or the opportunity to I don't know just just get more out of it somehow and uh, uh, that's my worry about where we end up is that we're not feeding into a term you started with is human flourishing humanity we're forgetting that as a criteria or a benchmark for where we want to end up and we're looking at convenience and then probably money as the thing we want at what cost yeah yeah i mean this this again in the in the pursuit of progress we lose sight of the things that we need to conserve and i had a brilliant conversation with nick hudson who's the founder of an organization called panda but he he during our podcast interview refuted the idea of left and right politics we, we were talking about the political paradigm I said, well, that's an interesting idea to explore because I, a lot of people would disagree with that point. And he broke down that, you know, really we have a sliding scale between progressivism, progress, and uh, conservatism, uh, conservation. And uh, he, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing and potentially oversimplifying, so apologies, Nick, if I've, if, if I've, if I've mis, misinterpreted it. But my takeaway from this was that along this sliding scale, we have things that we do need to progress and change. But we also have things that we need to conserve and protect. Yes. And we live in a time now where we're in a melting pot of ideas and a cultural shift that's happening so fast that perhaps we're losing sight in the moment of some of the things that we do need to conserve because it becomes situational, situationally important as opposed to generally important. So it's situationally or a level of subsidiarity, because even if you look at the kind of political compass of authoritarianism to libertarianism. I'm learning this, you know, freedom versus control. And that brings me back to my television story in a minute. I wasn't just reminiscing. I'll come back to that. But but in the home, you know, you want the best for all of your family. You want a sense of equity, equality and fairness amongst all your family members. But, you know, as you go to your neighborhood, it's not that you wouldn't want fairness or anything like that, but actually people's needs are so different outside of your household that there is no one size fit all strategy. But anyway, I deviate. But this idea of... Uh, uh, progress and conservation but it's, it's it's even beyond that because many of the things we've just touched upon is actually about reconnecting with things that we've lost so it's not just conserving things now that need to be conserved nature going back to what we've lost environment. Yes. there is also a going back to yeah. which doesn't stop us moving forward no. but it's reconnecting or reclaiming some of the things that we've lost because of the progress that we've had but yeah. progress happens so fast now that those yeah. in the present moment we have to catch ourselves as like free speech you know it's like that could be something we look back and think we should never have done that we'll be reclaiming our right to speak freely i can see it happening because that's that's a real hot topic issue again right now and again there's a multitude of ideas there are, and underpinned the safety culture we want to we want to eliminate all risk because if we, if we don't have any risk that we can thrive i can see that perspective i can see that perspective why you'd want to eliminate all risk but i can also see the great risks eliminating all risks again it's the need to think more deeply about these things and when you're on a conveyor belt you don't step off and say hang on a minute we haven't had that conversation or we haven't had that deep thinking about this we've just carried on down the conveyor belt I'm almost almost imagining 
somebody with a catcher net, you know, catching things. <laughs> Hang on, we've just lost that. Let's pull it back into the let's pull it back into our orbit again. Well, p- politics is supposed to have checks and balances. We're supposed to have you know these these these, uh, but but life should have checks and balances. We should be we should be actively making sense of things as we move along culturally and collectively. But again, that's part of this kind of more centralized decision making. Those checks and balances aren't happening on a local level, at an individual level, at a cultural level. It's happening beyond ourselves, which is why we have to bring it back to ourselves. But the reason I started to reminisce about the four channel television is because. It was. It had. I remember it had parental controls. It was still had digital. It had teletext. You know, the good old teletext. I was playing the bamboozle games, but it had parental control. So my parents, if they chose to, could have put a four-digit code in to disable the television from showing certain channels or programs at different times of day to me as a child. But they never used that, and instead, they talk to me about their values around use of the television in terms of how much I watch television, the nature of programming, and also engage with me despite my young age about what was suitable for me as a young person to watch and what was more adult in nature and and therefore why I couldn't watch certain films or television programs because they contain things that, you know, they believe at this at this time and this stage in my development would require me to have more life experience and again this isn't their exact words but we we would engage with it we would talk about it and it shaped my own values and yeah yeah they could have easily put the four digit encoded and there'd be no education just just gone back into the kitchen yes (laughs) just just a rule and it cuts it off so the reason i tell it is because in society right now we're taking the four digit pin code option We're, we're becoming more authoritarian we're putting more and more rules in place and regulations in lieu of having the difficult conversations that are necessary in order to actually empower ourselves and educate ourselves about the reasons why things should or should not happen. And there are many reasons for that. And that in itself is a big discussion. You know, the absence of a kind of defined moral standard or code in the, in the modern world, you know, because historically the church would, or would determine, you know, a large part of uh, of the way people had their moral standard. That's then assumed by the state now, big business. And it's like our moral authority has been, subjugated beyond the community level so there's all and that's just one component so all of these rich dynamics play out but as a new father I also understand that there are times where you do need rules and you know it for the good of others you don't know it, run into the road is one don't <laughs> run into the road like at some point yeah, I know yeah. you're gonna I know you're gonna put your hand in a naked flame and feel the pain I've done it myself I recall the exact moment I did it for the first time I think and, and but but it's like now as just a two-year-old you can have that lesson later on you don't need to suffer the consequences now so there is that time where you take a authoritarian approach to the situation but it doesn't become a general rule I don't become an authoritarian parent so I it, it, it to me it's a balance it's duality between Definitely. aggression and conservatism between yeah. authority and liberty and it's it should not be fixed it should be fluid and it should be situational and it should be dynamic in the broader sense but also an individual sense but, it, but because everything has been so far outsourced into this kind of global centralized decision making trusting the experts we've lost sight not only lost sight of but i also think lost the ability uh, to have that more localized uh, individualized uh, responsibility that I think is lacking so how do we reclaim that becomes the big conversation and I think first we have to start talking about it and because I do believe that awareness is the first step to change and you know uh, through my content recently we've inspired a lot of people to shop more locally and I've shared some brilliant stories about my own endeavors to do that you know it'd be very easy I went to a wedding and the theme was bohemian 
beach wedding. I say, what even is that? <laughs> and of course, it's easy. Go on Google. Go on Google and find out what In it means. In my day, a wedding was a wedding was a wedding, you know? Well, you know, you could argue that, you know, actually that is a genuine form of simplicity that, you know, it's like, you know, you wear a suit and tie. It's, it's you know, now it's smart casual. What does that even mean? Now I it's beach, beach bohemian. But I could have just ordered something on Amazon. It would have been with me by tomorrow. But I went yeah, to... Yeah, the- yeah. I went up to the local store and bought, bought my thing. I got to try it on, but I also got to meet the shop owner. And it turns out she's literally my neighbor. She lives across the street. We've only moved here several months ago. And I heard all about the, di- the different businesses in the area. I heard about the different communities. So it wasn't just the act of purchasing a, a garment <laughs> by it local shop. It an experience, doesn't it? An and that's the difference. An enriching experience. Yeah. So in the... But, you know, many people are too busy to do that. That's why I don't go to town. I've got too much to do. So it's like we've got to catch ourselves and we've got to come back to what are the obstacles to our own flourishing right now? Not only at a society level, but an individual level. And how do we make decisions for our own life? If we're too busy, if we're experiencing, I call it the busyness of business. It's only one letter difference, a Y instead of an I. The busyness of business then or going about our daily business. Then how do we how do we how do we catch ourselves in the moment and come back to that sense of evaluation? And we had this small window of time during the earlier stage of the COVID chapter. It almost felt like the world stood still, mm. and we got the chance to reflect on our values. And there was mm. a there was a lightness of that, d- despite the initial challenges. But that soon changed again. The polarization division came in, and you know, almost civil war breaking out on social media. But uh, the the um, we had a moment in time to reflect that was forced upon us which is an incredible gift. But yeah, it was, it was. I mean, I, I valued it hugely. And, you know, I think we need to recapture that or reignite that somewhere, How Dan. So I'd like you, if you can, to give us a final thought for listeners. You know, where do we, or where can individuals go with this idea and what can they do? I think you have outlined that a little bit in your last comments. And then where can people find you to engage with the content that you're creating, Dan? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, I think, you know, we, we if we make an appointment with our dentist or our doctor or the accountant, we tend to keep the appointment. But how often do we make appointments with ourselves and keep it to, you know, to, to give it the same importance, you know, to give it that level of gravity, to give it that level of uh, attention? Um, so I think one of the first things that we can each do, and I spoke about this in one of my latest podcasts, is to take that time, to book in the time to self-reflect and to resist the urge, which will inevitably happen. The to-do list is coming, like the kids have got needed attention, to carve out the time for you to take yourself to a space outside of your normal environment that you can feel comfortable, at ease, and even inspired. I did this recently. I went down to our local beach and I you know, I just bought myself a nice coffee and it's very intentional. I was like, I want, I, I really want this lovely, silky, warm coffee that's going to nourish me and invigorate me for this period of reflection. And I just sat and looked out at the ocean first, got myself in a very nice kind of state of mind and set of emotions. And then just took the time to really reflect on where I'm in my life right now, what's important to me and what, what, where do I want to go from here to make some conscious decisions outside of all the madness of the world and our own busyness of life and it was so enriching so enlivening and the challenge then becomes to make that a habit so it's not just a once in a lifetime moment where we stop it's actually forging regular points in our life to actually self-reflect reflect and I think it's about looking at our own life but it's also about what influence do we want to have on the world around us as a role model 
as a role model for, for change. Uh, so that's that that would be, I think, is one of the simplest steps that people can take. And and the second thing would be in the context of what we've talked about is to enrich your perspectives and to really practice the art of seeking first to understand before being understood and and before necessarily putting out your own views look to learn from others but but still have the courage to share your own views but be candid and open that this is your perspective now based upon the limited information that you have and you know be 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 honest if it's based upon your feeling about something or your feelings towards a situation and recognizing that there may be other perspectives that could change those feelings and change your view because that is the nature of critical thinking so have the courage so, so firstly, yeah, take the time for you. Secondly, seek first to understand before being understood. And then, and, and, and then thirdly, have compassion for yourself and others because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's almost like the lost art of compassion is something that we need to connect with as well as, as empathy. So um, yeah, those are, be, those are my, my, my three uh, takeaways. Oh, they're wonderful, Dan. I, I completely agree. And, and particularly the uh, art of, I would call it the art of compassion. I think people are so lacking in compassion, specifically for people they don't agree with. Um, I think that, so I think that's a great point. And then where do people find you, Dan? Where thank can- you. Yeah, thank you, Jane. So you can find me on, at the moment, <laughs> all the major content platforms. If you look for my name, Dan Aston Gregory, that's Aston, A-A-S-T-I-N, the amount of people that call me Austin Gregory, like Austin Powers. <laughs> I'm Astin Gregory, A-S-T-I-N. It's my wife's uh, surname. I took it when we got married, Double Bell. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, that's my my actual name is Dan Gregory, but it's become Dan Astin Gregory. So you'll find me on YouTube, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Rumble, Odyssey. Uh, you can also go to danastingregory.com. And if you're interested in being part of our online community, you can visit weareelevate.org. That's weareelevate.org. You know, for the types of conversations we have on the podcast, this has been a very beautiful conversation we've had a chance to kind of more nuance just to warn your viewers that i do get a little bit ranty and political on some things i don't all you know i you know so just just if, if you haven't been part of the global conversation about things in the state of the world you will get some different energies but that is that is being human and i'm trying to be my fully authentic congruent self but i'm also on a path of learning and putting myself first in that growth uh right now and and i'm really trying to practice what uh, what i've discussed today so yeah, that's that's where you can find me. And, you know, I really appreciate you having me on, Jane. It's it's no, thank you, Dan. I've hugely enjoyed it. I think the passion and the energy that, you know, you've shown and that we have in this conversation is what we're trying to model. We can have these passionate, energetic conversations and we should be having them at all sorts of levels. And so I thank you, Dan, for the time you've given for your, you know, your research and um, having the time to have this conversation. It's been absolutely fantastic thank you thank you jane just the last thing uh, you and i obviously you spoke at camp out we've actually got a mini documentary coming out 30 minutes documentary it's actually already out on youtube uh, but we're going to do a promotion around it. so if you're interested in hearing about the event and uh, a bit more about some of the aims that we discussed during this conversation about how we brought these kind of different groups together uh, i'll give jane the link and you'll be able to check that out as well thank you i'd like that too dan thank you very much for listening to this podcast if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and colleagues please do subscribe to the barefoot mediator podcast series and if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change challenge and crisis and download a pdf copy of my book how to beat bedlam in the boardroom and boredom in the bedroom please go to janegunn.co.uk slash video the link is in the show notes